0: Welcome, friends and colleagues. Today, I want to speak about the four rivers of Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14. Now, there is um, plenty of reason to speak about the Garden of Eden itself, and we will do that another time. But today, I want to go a bit back. We've kind of sprinted through Genesis. (laughs) Believe it or not, I would call it sprinting, what we've done so far and um, pick up a few aspects that we, we haven't done. Um, I really focused on two issues. The, the overarching uh, plan of showing in Genesis and then the rest of the five books of Moses uh, series of failures and how each suggested solution did not work and on the relationship of men and woman. But there are other, many other themes Some of which, we yes, we have covered, but there are many more. So now we're going to go back and talk about the four rivers of Genesis. Uh, According to our approach, um, I will eventually get to the meaning of those verses, what they're doing there. If you uh, look at the narrative, they appear like they're interrupting, they tell tell us something about the rivers, and it's... uh, Kind of difficult to see the relevance of that to the rest of the story of creation. So let's begin. There are four rivers. We spoke about just about uh, the tree of life in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then we have this paragraph which kind of interrupts and it says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. We're not going to take up what is Eden as related to the garden uh, right now, but it seems that it wasn't just the garden, it was the whole world that was being watered. It goes on to say from there it divided and became four major rivers. Now we're going to be told about four rivers. The first two, we don't really know what they are. The names are unusual, and they're not found anywhere else in the Bible. But there is a description of where they are. It just doesn't help us particularly much, but it does seem that the intent is to explain where they are because they are not uh, common names any longer uh, to the people who would be reading it uh, thousands of years ago. The last two we know. And um, there is minimal description or explanations of what they are. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to use the text called The Living Torah by Rabbi Ari Kaplan because of its excellent notes on this particular chapter. It's a good summary of the many, many opinions, not even all of them, that were offer it and relies heavily on Aaron Marcus's uh, work Kesses has suffered. Aaron Marcus is a fascinating person. There was a book published about him, uh, the Hosset of uh, Nuremberg, etc uh, which I wanted to get in the preparation for this talk, but I found it to be one hundred seventy nine dollars. There are not many copies left, but I remember reading it as a child. He was a German-educated young man, which means he went to gymnasium, and he was fluent in Greek and Latin. And then he made a major change in his life. He joined the Hasidim of Ger and moved to Warsaw. Now, at that time, it was like moving from New York to Kenya. Um uh, no, no offense to Kenya, but uh, I'm just trying to say that Germany was the center of the world culturally, uh, aesthetically, literary, scientifically. Um, and uh, moving to Warsaw was a major step. There, because of his command of multiple languages, he opened up a translating bureau, which is simply at the time you needed, if you needed to send a letter to another country... You needed it professionally translated. And at the end, I don't remember how many languages he spoke fluently. He picked up, of course, Polish and Ruthenian, White Russian, and uh, several other languages, and major European languages he spoke as well. Uh, Really remarkable man. (coughs) He wrote a number of very interesting works, some of them in German. (coughs) He wrote the first... uh, Work on and the Hasidic movement, which was still pretty fresh at that time. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and uh, all in all, was an amazing scholar. So let's continue uh, reading the passage. So the first, the name of the first is Pishon. We don't know what that means in verse twelve. Then, there's a description. It surrounds the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is especially good. Also found there are pearls and precious stones. Very strange. Um, we don't know what Pishon is. We don't know where Havilah is. I thought this was one of the sons of Yachtan that settled in South Arabia. And the Arab uh, legends are that those tribes came from Kahatan. So it's pretty well identified that that's where uh, Yoktan would have been living. But there are no rivers there. And then there's some aside about gold. Why do we need to know about gold and pearls? Maybe uh, (coughs) the assumption is people will know about a place where there are uh, gold and stones. Uh, pearls is a little bit strange because those are not found on land, but um, maybe that's an identifying feature. But it certainly doesn't help us. There's a place in India which is called Havela, which maybe is closer. Um, the the commentator who we quoted many times, um, Umberto Casuto. Uh, thinks that the reason for mentioning this gold is to clearly differentiate from the pagan myths of gold growing on trees. Like like you see in the story of the Jason and the Argonauts for example the golden fleece which is on the tree and it says no uh, the gold is in land which is actually how it is so that removes some kind of a semi-divine or sacred status from gold. I uh, Maybe but uh, it, it is still, uh, I think, only partial explanation. Let's move on. <coughs> the name of the second river is Gihon. It surrounds the land of Kush. So there are two Kushes. There's the Kush, which is Ethiopia, has always been its name. But there's also Hindu Kush, which is a series of mountains in India. Again, not very helpful to us, although they may have known exactly. Now, the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows to the east of Assyria. We know Tigris. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it's Hidekel, uh, it's, uh, which we know from many later sources, including from the Talmud, uh, Babylonian Talmud, which was written in that area. That that's what we call Tigris. And it identifies as which it flows to the east of Assyria. We, we have to ask the question of why we need this identification for a river that's so well known. So, the first two rivers, there is prof- uh, profound uh, profundity of, of identifying marks, and we don't know what they are. The third one, which we easily know, and it's identified to be to the east of Assyria. And then there is the fourth river of Euphrates. Of Paras, so I would suggest uh, you know that I'd like I'd like to add my explanation to the hundreds of explanations that have been uh, well published and recorded over the years. People are very interested in the subject of what these rivers are. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I would suggest that the description of the Tigris River of Hedekel is there to teach us the direction in which we're encountering these rivers. Uh, as, as is pretty well known, uh, our convention of writing maps with north on top is, is really just a fairly recent convention of a f- few hundred years and that relates to when the compass became, came to Europe from China There are really many other ways to look at it. Uh, There are maps that put the east at the top. The most medieval maps do that. There are maps that, like our GPSs, put whatever direction you're planning to travel in uh, at the top, etc. I would suggest that this otherwise unnecessary identification of Hedekal Tigris being east of Asher is there to tell us in what direction we're moving. In other words... We are moving from west to east. If we are moving from west to east, the first two rivers should be found somewhere in the area of India. And <coughs> there are those who, who think so. Uh, for example, Josephus and Abarbanel say that it's the Ganges River or the Indus River of India. Rabbi Aaron Marcus. We spoke about him in Kessasoffer says that it's the Karun River which flows through Iran into the Persian Gulf. So that would make sense if if you uh, think that the identification of the Tigris being east of Ashur is there just to show you that we have now we're now getting from west to east. I'm sorry, from <laughs> I misspoke from east to west, and as we're going from India. Towards the land of Israel, the focus here is not on the land of Israel, but on the Mesopotamian territories. So we're traveling from east to west, and the last rivers, River Tigris and Euphrates, both of which are very close to each other and are kind of connected at the bottom where they flow into the Persian Gulf, uh, would be uh, the ending direction from west to east. Others, however, uh, identify the Pishon with Nile. Rashi says this because of uh, of um, Pishtim, uh, flax, that's grown in Egypt. To this day, the best linens come from Egypt. Josephus identifies Gihon, the second river that we don't know what it is, with the Nile. Uh, others uh, talk about Bishon and Gihon being the Blue Nile and the White Nile. <coughs> and these are the major tributaries of Nile which then unite together uh, and flow into the Mediterranean. As I mentioned um, there are many different explanations. and barely scratching the surface with the summary I just uh, reviewed a very interesting explanation was by Hermann Gunkel who was a german scholar um at uh, the, the end of last century i don't mean the 2 th- i don't mean 1900s. i mean 1800s and he wrote a book specifically dedicated to identifying the four rivers based on ancient sources, he concludes that there, is, there are no rivers now that meet this description. And therefore, you know what the four rivers are? They are the Milky Way. the Milky Way and its four spiral arms. Very interesting approach. But it assumes that the Garden of Eden is in heaven, which I think is is a common Christian approach um it 's not the Jewish approach, or at least it might be in heaven and on earth at the same time we 'll go into it when we talk about location of the Garden of Eden. Taking a step back you know we 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 think that we we, we can note that the most important impediment to understanding these passages are that people read it as being one river that then divides into four Roshim, four heads. So, they have this vision of one river and then it separates into four channels and there is no such thing uh, in that area. Um, And therefore, explaining this is is very difficult. Now, some have suggested that maybe the flood uh, changed the course of the rivers or maybe they flow underground. The description of the river that separates into four is the river underground uh, that then separates into four visible rivers underground. Um, we we don't really know of such a thing at this time. But I think the solution to this would be looking at the verbs in the paragraph. Uh, how How would you describe it? Uh, you would say And there was a river that went out of uh, Eden and it separated into four channels and it became four heads. Everything would be in the past, right? All the verbs would be in the past. But that's not what it says. There are three verbs that are used. The Nahar Yotse and the river goes out present. Umishom Ipareit and from there it will separate and v'haya, and it was, or it became, four heads. We also have another clue in this four heads. Why do we have a clue? Because there are other places where there are four heads, and in all of these places, they mean four separate columns. So what's it saying? It's separated into four separate columns, which is in fact what we see. Um, all, all the rivers that are candidates for these four rivers are separate. For example, in Judges 9.34, and they ambushed with four heads. The troops were divided into four columns. The previous chapter also has three heads. So I would make a suggestion that there are four rivers from four directions, and uh, we're going from west to, uh, to east. Now, so what's the explanation of these forms? It comes out, and it will separate, and it became. So, uh, as an introduction, I would uh, remind the listeners that uh, Biblical Hebrew, Lashon HaKodesh, has a fairly weak uh, verbal structure. In other words, um, and this may be part of Greek versus Hebrew mentality, the past, the future, and the present are sort of leaking into each other, bleeding into each other. And sometimes you can use the word in the past for the future. There is something called vov Hifuch. the end. I usually translated, "and he said, and they went. No, it's not an end. Um, a lot of these cases, it's just a grammatical structure that indicates that the past form of the verb changes into the future and the future changes into the past. You can tell when the future changes into the past because the verb has a patach under it and there's a dagesh in the yud. It, there's no rule for when the past changes into the future. But nevertheless, this, is, this verbal structure is weak. It's much affected by context and it's also affected by other verbs. So, and I'm not going to try to prove that now because of the time limitations, but when you say that the river river is going out now from Eden, and it will separate, that will separate Iparate, is not the future, but it's conditional or subjunctive. And then when we use the V'haya, which is the past that's turned by this Vav Ha'hipuch into the future, it means a... uh, a fairly close past. Let's just accept that uh, from me right now. So therefore, what it says is that the Nile River is going out from the perspective of the uh, narrator. At at that time, it's going out. But it's destined, it will, conditional, uh, subjunctive, it would separate into four heads and this v'ha'ya l'arbarashim, and it became four heads. In the fairly recent past, it became four separate rivers. Okay, that's all. I hope I hope I hope I made it clear. It's this complicated. And there's a lot of information, but let's now try to understand. I go back to the original question which is, well, what is this chapter doing here? What is this paragraph, I'm sorry, doing here? We're talking about the Garden of Eden, then we started talking about the river. What? What is the uh, meaning or significance of this river? Why do we need to know? Uh, and um, uh, why uh, the whole uh, commandment of uh, uh, us in, in 2.15, God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch it, why does this come after this paragraph about the four rivers? So if you widen your lens a bit, you will see that just before this uh, inserted paragraph, you have a description of the plants growing and the plants ya, Dama and a mist rose, Again, will rose. Okay, another verbal uh, construction from the ground and um, and provided water to the land, the faces of the land. So I believe that uh, at this point of the story, we're facing a major a uh, uh, confounding difficulty. We learned already that there was water. Water, water everywhere. Then, it, the water was separated into waters above the ha- firmament and the waters below the firmament. That explains why there's dry land. Then, God said that the waters should gather into specific places, and he called that seas, but rivers are a confounding uh, question. Where did the rivers come from, and and how did uh, how what role do they play? And I think our paragraph is trying to explain to us that first there was just the mist, and that was sufficient. But in order to work the land, men needed rivers. Rivers bring sufficient waters for irrigation. They make places where the mist isn't sufficient uh, uh, available for agriculture. People traditionally settled by the rivers. There are, there are very few cities, uh, Jerusalem being an exception, that are not on the river. And they rely on the cisterns uh, to collect rainfall. But generally, human beings have settled uh, Near rivers, so that they have water to drink, and methods of irrigating and travel. So, God then created rivers, and then it was that man is able to work the land and and watch the land, which is the uh, right after cre- completing the story of the rivers. God said, uh, God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And watch it. Verse 15. So this paragraph answers an important question. From the literary aspect, it also introduces an element of mystery. We have to understand how this passage um, impacts on the listener. What it tells them is that this, this place is truly miraculous. It's not just some place called Eden. But there was an Eden, and there was a garden, and there was a river. All the rivers you know about came from that river. That is the those rivers that sustain humanity. Everywhere you look, people are settling near rivers. Uh, rivers also had a semi-divine status, and the Nile was an object of worship. So, um, at the same time, it negates. Uh, the divinity of the rivers, because they were subject to God's creation and formation. Uh, It also explains the unusual and, and amazing fact that there are rivers floating through the dry land. After all, water was all packed away into the seas, and now where do the rivers come from? So it's only after the rivers that we can talk about men working and keeping the land just as he does now in our experience, in the experience of the reader or the listener who knew that rivers is where people settle and where they do the agricultural work. Well, thank you for listening and may you have only blessings.